friends, countrymen, lovers of all things design. This is Grits and Grids. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of talking with Michael Barut. He is a partner at Pentagram Design. Uh, for those of you that don't know about Pentagram, they are the, one of the top design firms in the world. Uh, so you basically have to be living in a cave if you don't know who they are. Michael, why don't you say hello and give a quick little uh, background? Um, yeah. Um, hi, Joseph. Uh, I'm Michael Barut, as you just said. I'm um a partner. I'm one of eight partners in the New York office of Pentagram. We have four offices in different places around the world. Uh, we're, some people say we're the largest independent design consultancy. We've been around since 1972. I've been a partner here since 1990. So that means I've been working in this job for 27 years. Oh, wow. Congrats. And it's a new shop now. You guys just moved, right? Yeah, we just moved. Uh, we were in a, um, in an office uh, over on Fifth Avenue here in Manhattan for 22 years and uh, we're on that block in fact since 1980 so for um, uh, for 37 years actually uh, and uh, somewhat uh, uh, in a in a traumatic huge uh, um, uh, landmark move moved uh, a few blocks to the uh, south and a few blocks to the east to Park Avenue south and 20th Street which is where we are now so that had to be a bit bittersweet. Oh uh, yeah, a little bit. We had really outgrown the space we were in, which we which we liked. Uh, but it was it 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 started out as being charming and quirky, and just got progressively more uh, impractical. And uh, we um, uh, when we started out on that block so many years ago, nearly forty years ago, it was a no man's land and actually borderline dangerous uh and now it's one of the trendiest parts of new york uh, uh there were no when we moved there there were no restaurants and now it's the epicenter of a whole food culture um and um and it just got progressively pricier and more crowded while we were there and um uh as a, as, as a place to sort of um come to the office every day it was fun but as a uh a place to actually sit and work or try to collaborate, it got harder and harder as we grew from being probably 30 people to 100 plus people in the same space. It was just kind of like not, not good. Yeah, jumping over of each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, one of the nice things about being in New York, though, is you really don't have to think too hard about um, necessarily the surroundings any longer. Uh, when you're looking at a new space here in Atlanta, part of finding real estate is, okay, will my team have the ability to go to some cool spots to eat? And, uh, you know, and we still have some dodgy areas uh, for sure. Um, whereas 80s in New York, I think pretty much was one big dodgy area. I think I remember there being T-shirts like get mugged in New York. Yeah, well, in fact, because um, in, in 1980, because there was like like nearly nowhere to eat in in anywhere around where the office was um they um you know my predecessors at the firm brought in a chef to cook lunch for the staff every day and that's a tradition that continues on to this day actually and so um even though um you know we're right across the street from what some people say is one of the best restaurants in 
in New York, Union Square Cafe, and around the corner from Gramercy Tavern, and surrounded by lots of options at different price points. Um, we like to have our staff um, uh, and the partners and everyone that works here have the option of sitting down together over a hot meal that our chef Ann Farrell makes for us. So um, that's actually, um, you know, to, to a degree that we sort of think, uh, uh, you know, eating together is a great way to socialize and build a, a studio culture. Uh, we've been dedicated to that, you know, for decades and decades. And uh, our London office where we started does the same thing. That's amazing. Um, and that's a great segue into the, the first segment, which is the grits. Um, you know, so that is a time for everyone to socialize and kind of get acquainted, I think, maybe more on personal levels. Uh, do you think it, it helps uh, positively affect and inspire the work that the team does? Um, to the degree that um, spending time together and um, uh, and being with coworkers and knowing them above and beyond just what their you know job function is, what what role they're playing on a project, knowing them you know you, if you sit down to eat with someone, it's actually. It's not quite. It's not considered off limits to talk about work, but it's sort of. But people will talk about anything and everything, you know. And I think that, um, you know, I think as designers, the more we can respond to the work we're doing as, you know, as human beings, as you know, complete, you know, uh, personalities, and not just someone who has. You know the who's who has a set of specific skills and is exec and is exercising them on behalf of a particular you know uh, assignment. Uh, I think it just makes the work better because the work that designers do, the work that graphic designers do, particularly, is really uh, you know its it, its effect is a social one. It's it's meant to kind of communicate and make connections between people. And I think if you're a connected person yourself, you're just better at doing that. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. Um, I think the lower class way of saying it is like rather than being a doozer, um, yeah, yeah. responding to a brief and simply executing, like you mm -hmm. said, a uh, design principle, which sometimes I know that we have to do. I think we had that conversation in here because a couple of us were just struggling with a brief. And it's, you know, how do you design something when you're just not feeling it? And uh, that's sort of a ringer question that I didn't prepare you for, but do you have any thoughts on that? Like when you're not, you're just not feeling something, how do you really push through? Well, um, I have, because of the pentagram structure, I've got some unique advantages for one thing. Um, the way we work here, you know, my seven partners and I, um, in theory, we can, um, pass jobs to each other or we can turn to each other in all sorts of different things. If I get, um, a call about doing a project, even from a current client, and I am either, as you say, not feeling it or simply don't think that I actually am the most qualified person to undertake it. If I think one of my partners is more qualified, I can say, hey, you know, why don't um, why don't I bring in, um, um, you know, uh, Abbott Miller or Paula Scher or Natasha Jen or Luke Heyman or Emily Oberman or Michael Garricky or Eddie Opara uh, to work on this either with me or just, uh, you know, turn the project over to them directly. Uh, so, so, or sometimes I can, um, you know, alternatively, I can just kind of pivot in my chair and say, you know, hey, Michael, or hey, Paul, or hey, Abbott, um, uh, 
you know, I, I'm stuck on this. What can, what can you do? And they'll have fresh eyes and they won't be burdened with probably a lot of noise that I've kind of, um, uh, kind of filled my head with that's actually stopping me from seeing it clearly. And they can just say, you know, why don't you just do this? Or why are you just focused on that part of it? Do you really have to have that? You know, you know, they, they can kind of force me to kind of question my basic premises. So I think, um, uh, given that that was, you know, back in 72, when the firm was founded, that was like one of the basic ideas of five designers coming together to work kind of as a collective was that idea of, you know, interdisciplinary, uh, you know, collaboration and inspiration. And, and that still kind of goes on today. Um, I will say, honestly, Joseph, that sometimes I'll, um, you know, I'll get an assignment. I can just tell by someone will call me about a particular project and it just won't be something that I'm into. And I'll sort of just pass on it before I, before I even accept it. I've gotten better and better at that. The danger of that, of course, is you just start, you know, um, gorging on the things you like and not challenging yourself with things that seem like they might be hard or unfamiliar. And I don't think you grow just by doing the same thing over and over again. So that can be a bad thing as well. Um, but then I think, you know, the, probably the thing you're imagining is you've accepted a project and you've done it with enthusiasm. Then suddenly you find yourself worked out to a dead end and, um, uh, uh, and, and what do you do then? And I've actually found, um, like I'm, I'm very, I'm like, I'm very dogged. I'll sort of like, uh, um, if I'm working on a project, I'll get, I, it's really easy for me. I've got a bad habit of getting fixated on one thing because I, I just love, I, you know, I just, I, I, I just love finding the answer. And sometimes I'll mistake something for the answer and I'll just seize on it and just kind of like just beat on it for, you know, for hours or days or even weeks. And I'll, you know, and, I'll, and I'm, and at this point I'm, 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 you know, I've always been, I think I've always been pretty smart and pretty talented and, and, uh, and I'm at this point, I'm pretty experienced too. So I can actually surround if I'm doing, if I'm making a big mistake, I can disguise that pretty well with an aura of confidence and competence to a certain degree. So it's like, so it takes a pretty, sometimes it, I think it takes a pretty brave client or, or the designers on my team or my uh, partners to say, um, you know, I think this is completely wrong. Why are you doing this? And so a lot of times um, uh, what I've actually learned to do is um, th I, I sort of have learned to thrive on and feed on rejection to a certain degree. And there was a time when I was younger, earlier in my career, where I just saw, you know, I, I saw um, – um, the challenge of doing design work and getting my clients to approve my work as being sort of, you know, it was war basically. And I just had to be very, very cunning and kind of have my strategy all set up and kind of get them to accept the thing I was proposing. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think, I, I think a lot of designers, you know, that, that's an ethos that I think informs it the way a lot of designers work. And, um, and a lot of good designers actually will sort of say, you know, clients are, you know, we have to educate clients. They're dumb. You sort of have to somehow, um, um, 
you know, assume that they're wrong and kind of force them to do it your way because you're the expert. And I, you know, and I understand that point of view. And I, and obviously I do think that I have an expertise at the, at this career I've undertaken. However, um, a lot of times I can kind of, kind of land at a solution kind of really quickly and effortlessly. And what will make it interesting is if the client says, you know, this is almost right, but it's missing this point, or for some reason, this just isn't working, and I can barely articulate it. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have just kind of launched into full, full defense mode, you know, just sort of like surmounting all their doubts and challenging all their concerns and just using everything I had to kind of wheedle them into doing it the way I wanted to do it. And now I have to admit, if I hear someone say, you know, I just get really, you know, I, I get fascinated by Sometimes if someone's, you know, you can't expect clients to be articulate to, 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 to speak in a design vocabulary. And so they'll use whatever words they have available to them to sort of express what's not working for them about something I presented. And a lot of times just really kind of like letting all your defenses down and kind of opening up, really listening and really kind of having a conversation and, you know, not giving up until you really feel like you understand what the objection is. I find I, I actually, to, to a disconcerting degree, I find that, uh, um, you know, that will make me come back with something that I think is, you know, sometimes less in my comfort zone that shows that that forces me to work harder and to focus more on every level of the assignment. And it actually and, and, and by the way, it's probably better suited to its purpose because uh my clients tend to know more about the you know you know how they're going to define success based on the work that i'm doing than i do you know so i so um so to me i sort of um uh, you know, I mean, in fact, in fact, uh, you know, oddly enough, the, the projects that I actually find the, the, the most frustrating and, and, and sometimes the, the, the least fulfilling are those ones that are kind of like, Hey, it's like a completely open brief, do just whatever you are inspired to do. The kind of things that you'll be asked to do for like a benefit or something. We asked, you know, we asked 30 designers to all do this thing. You know, I have to admit, I just kind of, I'm like, I'm no good at that. I just sort of, I, I, you know, it's like, um, you know, the, the metaphor that I overuse is, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a doctor and doctors need patients and the sicker, the better. And the more interesting and intricate the disease is, the more, the, the more it kind of, you know, brings out the good doctor in me, you know, and if you're just surrounded by healthy people or just sort of like, you know, hey, you know, pretend to be a doctor just for fun. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like you, you actually need someone, uh, you need someone who's sick and uh, the, if it's a life or death thing, all the better, you know. Yeah, you need symptoms. You need uh, you need information to actually work with, you know, so it's, it's interesting. You touch on a few Things that I think, um, one, introspectively for myself, I have been uh, really harping on, but also been discussing with my team as well. And I think uh, the one thing that you had mentioned about falling in love with, with your own work, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, narcissist, narcissist syndrome, maybe. Uh, not, not, not in the bad way that like, oh, Michael can't stop looking in the mirror, but it's like you do something and you're like, that is amazing. Um, and I usually say to my, you know, my team and myself in my head, probably more often than I should is, you know, kill your darlings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just, you know, drown that thing and like go on to the next thing and push yourself to do a few more options because maybe that's not it. Um, and then the other one <laughs> with regard to battle, it's another good battle, uh, 
you know, analogy is deciding which sword you want to fall on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I think a lot of younger designers go into the industry. Um, you know, I'll call it out, actually. I think there's a little bit of they're more concerned whether they acknowledge it or not. They're more concerned about the quality of their work as it'll be perceived by the creative industry as opposed to the quality of work in that it's a commercial ask at the end of the day. And I hate to say it because it kind of takes the magic out of it. But if our work does not move uh, a needle, it doesn't have to be revenue, but a needle of some sort, then we haven't done a good job, no matter how beautiful it is. Um, would you tend to agree? Um, I agree. I sort of, um, I don't necessarily, you know, I think, I think there's a lot, I, I know a lot of, you know, um, bad designers or, or firms that do work that I don't necessarily admire who would defend what they're doing by saying that it's satisfying the brief and it's, you know, it's selling whatever it's meant to sell. So that means it's good, you know? And I think that that's, um, you know, um, you know, I think that's only half of what the, you know, what the equation of doing, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna undertake this with this work, I think it's you have to both um, uh, be in it to please yourself on your own terms and to satisfy the, uh, you know, to satisfy the brief and to make it work commercially too. And I do agree that I think it's, um, you know, when you're in school um, and you're just you're just learning how to do this thing, you spend so much of your time. Um, you know, just, you know, you work in a bit, a bit of a, of a bubble that's been created, you know, by your professors and the academic environment. And you really are just pleasing yourself. And, um, and a lot for a lot of people, and, uh, it can, it can be, um, traumatic. In fact, when suddenly you're in a, um, a practical environment where deadlines, budgets, clients who don't care about design necessarily are all of a sudden you know entering the equation and it's no longer just what you consider good design or what's widely considered among your peers good design but all of a sudden now these other um people are passing judgment on it and it can really be disorienting and you can kind of cross over to that side completely sometimes and get completely mixed up right or you can kind of um uh, you know you know, completely ignore all those things and, and try to like make your way that way. And I think some people, some people have done that and can do that. And that's one way to go too. But I actually think that the tension between the commercial requirements and the creative um, requirements is sort of where all the interesting part of the work is. It's not just the one thing. It's not just the other thing, but it's the way the two things interact. Yeah, very much agreed. I, you know, I think what I, what I usually find is the, so we'll open up the can of worms, I guess. The comment section on Brand New, for instance, and it's one of many comment sections, are is so devoid of relevant information in many ways. Now, there are some insights and some interesting thoughts, but at the end of the day, like, for instance, when we look at, um, you know, at Vigor, when we talk with a client about the ask, whatever it may be, and we start talking about menu and offering, of course, and there are things on the menu that quite literally are highly profitable. And so the school of thought, you know, from a, a CFO standpoint would be, we'll promote the hell out of those because we make the most money. Um, but there's also things that you put on a menu that, you know, probably won't sell very much, but they drive perceptions that help elevate your turkey sandwich, you know, you know, and I think that's the thing. That's that's that dance where it's like, yes, we need to make money, but we're not going to make money 
in the long run by selling by promoting only a turkey sandwich because we'll just be boring. No one knows why we're different. And I think that's that's kind of the dance between a commercial and a creative uh, in the, at least the restaurant world from our standpoint is, yes, it makes sense because you want to make money. But, you know, this ostrich pie, you know, kind of tells a story about the brand, right? Um, that's brilliant. So when you um, let's go back to the food a little bit. You were born and raised in Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I was born in 1957, so I grew up as a child of the 60s, basically. Nice. What a fun time to be alive. Um, Cleveland is not necessarily known as a cultural epicenter, um, but I know that Western PA takes you know kind of the same world, and that's where my family's from. What was one dish that you remember most growing up? Like, what was that thing that either mom always cooked or was always on the table or was like a once a week kind of thing? Um, my late mother uh, was a terrible cook. I realized, you know, it took me a long time to realize that. Um, she's, my dad is, was Polish, so son of, first generation son of Polish immigrants. My mother was Irish, first generation daughter of Irish immigrants. Um, and, um, you know, she couldn't. Polish food is interesting. Irish cooking is notoriously sort of, you know, boiling everything to death. And my mom had mastered, you know, what she couldn't defrost. She would just boil. And I, I just remember, uh, it, like, it was, it was, it was just, you know, uh, she, she was a good baker. I have to admit, she could make like a good pie and good like pan brownies and stuff like that. Um, but like, I mean, the, the things I liked eating the most were like things like pop tarts and stuff i mean like it's like it had no relationship to anything that you would call cooking now the my, my most vivid memory of a home-cooked meal um had to do with the first time i um i i started dating my now wife of 37 plus years but then girlfriend in high school um and so we started i started dating her as a junior in high school and so i would have been like 15 or 16 or so and um i went to her house for dinner uh and her parents are both um hungarian and german like you know german slash eastern european kind of a little bit itinerant uh, as they were moving around in in uh you know, the years after World War II, but um, uh, her mom definitely kind of cooks Hungarian. So I think the first dish I had there was probably either chicken paprikash or Hungarian goulash. And I sat down at the table and I have to admit, I put the food in my mouth and I almost like jumped out of my seat because I sort of, and, and then I, real, and I've, I realized that like until that moment, I sort of, it was like weird. It's sort of, it was like, um, um, like I'd had good, I'd had like food that I thought tasted good, but it was always in restaurants. And I sort of had, I realized at that moment that I had this kind of like, you know, unspoken and on, you know, subconscious assumption that, um, somehow restaurants had access to special spices or special techniques that you needed to have a license to acquire. And that if you were at home, you kind of had to make do with like the kind of stuff we had in our cupboard and the food was just doomed to taste bad. The idea you could actually make good tasting food at home was just so startling to me. And so I just like, I, and like, and of course, um, uh, my dear mother-in-law was kind of confounded my, by my reaction because this was just like everyday fare for her. But it was just kind of like it just tasted so good. And, of course, there's nothing um, 
more endearing to your future mother-in-law than to overreact to how good her food tastes, you know? So she's, I've stayed in her good graces ever since, but, um, but, it's, and so then that's very much a Cleveland tradition, of course, which has, you know, huge populations of Eastern Europeans, Czechoslovakian, um, uh, Hungarian, Ukrainian, um, uh, you know, Russian, Polish, um, Slovak, um, you know, uh, and it's like it's very much uh, an immigrant city, and so uh, um, my parents were both. I, I sort of realized, kind of in, you know, they were in denial about that because they were just determined to be as American as possible, and that meant kind of, you know, um, lots of frozen foods, lots of re- mixes out of boxes, lots of uh, um, things like pop tarts and Oreos and the kind of stuff you can picture being set on a table in 1965. And, um, um, and Dorothy's parents who were not the children of immigrants, but were themselves immigrants had come over here, you know, in the late fifties and spoke, um, still spoke German at home. Uh, uh, and, and my mother-in-law can speak German, Hungarian, Croatian, all kinds of languages, because she sort of had to as she was moving around as a kid, as a refugee. Um, she, um, uh, um, you know, that kind of cooking was the only kind of cooking she like knew, and you know, she, and she wouldn't be shopping at a, you know, at the AMP. She would be going to you know these little butcher shops and little bakeries and things and getting, you know, really good fresh food that tasted a certain way. So uh, my introduction to good Cleveland cooking at home was uh, not in my house, but in my girlfriend's house. I like it. You know, my mom was actually a really good cook. However, she fell victim to diet trends. So there was a very clear moment when she got home from work, finally had enough because we went through the no salt phase. And then I think we were into the no fat phase. And um, I had peanut, I had a jar of peanut butter, a jar of mayonnaise, um, and a few other bits and bobs sitting on the counter. And I was just waiting there, like I was the parent, right? And she came up, like, "Mom, we need to talk." Like there, there are things in this world that you can take fat out of, and it's totally okay. There are things that you can't. These items on this counter need fat in order to taste good. And I know what I'm eating. It's not that bad in moderation. Please get normal peanut butter. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's funny now that she has embraced, uh, as you said, the full suite of spices. Her cooking is as good as it probably should have been. But there there was a time in my life, a good five or six years, where there just was not salt in the house. And uh, terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, my mother's kind of um, – cupboards were as idiosyncratic, but they weren't conforming to any sort of dietary standards except um, her own um, uh, her own imagined idea of what America was supposed to be like. Which is pretty, and, and she and, and I, I, I can speak so freely because both um, my mom and dad, um, uh, they both died. And so uh, no one's around to, uh, you know, yell at me and say, What's, how can you say that? And I will say, you know, she she could really make a good chocolate cream pie though, or you know, God, that, that, that she could, for some reason baking was great, um, but like cooking was good. So I mean, it was like um, you'd sort of like gnaw, you'd kind of like chew this overcooked hot roast and this, you know, mashed potatoes made from a box, and then uh, um, once you got through that, you'd have like you know 
you know, brownies and ice cream for dessert. And that actually was like, sort of, and that's sort of like, boy, that's like, that's like really a bad, it's like not a good plan, but that was sort of my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You got through the battle. Now here's your reward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so would you take any of those uh, today? And let's just say you had a, a guest to, at the house. Maybe it's uh, Mrs. Clinton or someone that you really respect. Um, we're coming to the house. What would you cook for them? Would it be something of that era? Um, well, for one thing, I, I've never, uh, I like, I don't cook anything in my house. So we've been, um, the whole time we were, um, uh, dating and, um, yeah, married my, I've never, I've, I've never like cooked anything. The only thing, the most adventurous thing I've ever made in our house was, has been remain scrambled eggs. And I do that maybe, like i mean once every three years or so like really rarely um dorothy is a really enthusiastic cook will cook dishes from her mom's recipe book like replicating things that i remember her making in you know 1977 1987 1997 you know like like that recipe for chicken paprikas which she hasn't made in a long time after met her hungarian goulash um she could do that tomorrow if she wanted right and um uh you know now one of my uh daughters is uh is a vegetarian and so uh dorothy kind of really got into cooking vegetarian and um is, is great at that and she can do, she's like she really is a really enthusiastic and adventurous cook and uh so on the other hand we have um agreement that um she never has to do the dishes and even if i'm um, th there might be some occasion where I'm like late after work or I go out to dinner with a client or with some other people. If I get home late and she's had dinner at home, um, she can leave all the dishes in the sink and I have to wash her dishes before I go to bed. So she, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it also, I think is, um, every time, like for instance, we're recording this in January and the, you know, the holidays are right behind us and, um, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners and stuff like that just requires, you know, day-long preparations in my house. That's so true for so many other people. And I have to admit, I find it, um, she takes real satisfaction in that. And all I see kind of, and this might be the designer in me sort of thinking this, is just sort of the, all the tender loving care that's put into the creation of something that's like demolished within minutes virtually you know six hours of cooking and then after an hour on the table then it's all just a big mess whereas i always say you know if you wash those dishes they stay clean for you know days yeah right <laughs> you know it's just really you really feel like you're you're restoring yeah yeah you're restoring order where where before there was chaos you know and i suppose they're both two different sorts of you know that's kind of an interesting idea actually when you think about it there's probably a kind of designer who likes to wash dishes and a kind of designer that likes to cook and they're slightly different impulses. And I think, um, for instance, the dishwashing designer is probably someone who likes to be given a mess that then they, that they kind of find the order in. And then the cooking designer is one who likes to be given the ingredients and they have to create something new out of it. And I think, um, you know, I think most designers have both those impulses within them somehow. But I remember, you know, my first job in Manhattan was working for Massimo Vignelli. And he was definitely a, um, you know, someone who sought the order and things. He kind of didn't like being you know, being given a, a blank slate and kind of come up with anything you want. Instead, he would, um, uh, you know, he would be given a complicated set, you know, here's, you know, here's a book. It's got 300 pictures. It's got 4,000 
words of text. It's got a bunch of charts and diagrams. It, it, you know, it just make it make sense and have it all go together. And he's he's able to do that. He's, he, I mean, he was great at doing that. And I think I forget. I think he he, he liked. I think he he liked to cook, but I think he sort of was um, um, uh, he as I recall, he sort of his cooking was simple things, and uh, um, uh, I, I'm not sure just because you like to wash the dishes that means you're that kind of designer. But I think there are two different ways of looking at the world. Perhaps I don't know. It's a theory I've never had before before this conversation, and it may not have any validity at all. So no, I'm following you. And maybe I'll ruffle some feathers here, but to me, the, uh, the cook is the artist and the dishwasher is the designer. Uh, Yeah, maybe. And to the degree that, um, that every designer has every good designer, I think has an artistic, um, uh, perspective they're bringing to the work. I think you sort of have to be both of them. I think if you, if you're just, you know, I've known good designers who were so passionate about the dishwashing part of things that, um, um, you know, they found ways just to do that. If you, I mean, I've known people who just um, focused almost entirely on form simplification, say, you know, just kind of like do or, or just do really clear, you know user interfaces or stuff like that. And that's really just about how, you know, how do I determine the function of something and how do I deliver that function in the most efficient way possible? Um, And in theory, you can do that, you know, you can view that as an entirely functional exercise that doesn't have, um, uh, you know, that requires no artistry at all. But of course, you know, I mean, part of what makes life beautiful, you know, I mean, I, in fact, I got in an argument on stage with, uh, with Massimo Vignelli one time at a, in a, uh, uh, uh it was a, a symposium about book design and, um, he's a really brilliant book designer. And for some reason he had decided, I think just to be provocative to sort of say that print books were dead and, uh, um, you know, the digital world was just so much more efficient in terms of providing people with access to um, to images and text and information overall, that there's no reason why anyone should ever have to design another book again. Everything should just be available online and why why go through the wasteful process of designing books, wasteful in terms of effort and expense and uh, resources and everything else, right? And my, my counter argument to that, these, you know, uh, relevant to the subject we're talking about today was that, um, um, you know, you could say the same thing about nutrition. You know, scientifically, we know what each of us has to consume to stay healthy during the course of a day. And you could probably reduce it all to, you know, some soil and green kind of formulation where you could just, you know, take three pills and wash it down with some sort of smoothie and that would set you for the whole day, right? And the entire world could kind of be issued the same three pills and the same uh, quart of beige, you know, liquid and that would actually be all you would need right except you know that that isn't just you know people don't eat just in search of nourishment they do it as part of a ritual they do it as an expression of culture they do it to honor the traditions that they were brought up in. they do it to explore traditions they're unfamiliar with um they do it to kind of demonstrate their ingenuity to to express love they do it for all these different reasons and i said that's what design is too you know design isn't just simply the um conveyance of um 
of information in the most efficient way possible. It is that, but it's also how do you frame that in a way that kind of puts your own personality into it, that shows what you value and ask someone else to share your experience in valuing that, that uh, experience. And I think that's what makes, you know, everything beautiful that we encounter in the world that we remember is as a result of someone putting that sort of care into it. And so um, that was my counter argument. And, um, uh, you know, I was so pleased with that counter argument. I forget whether anyone was persuaded by it, but I kind of thought it was, I, I actually thought it was, you know, uh, as, a, as a metaphor for what design was, I thought it was kind of effective. Yeah. And there's also something very tangible and um, iconoclastic about a book. It has, it's a very, there's a very clear, and there's no going back, you know, once that's there, it's there and it's permanent. Right. And I think there's something beautiful about that as well. And now you just, you just actually finished and launched a new book um, recently. And I wonder, well, for those who are listening, it's called Now You See It and Other Essays on Design. Uh, please go buy it. But was there an option to leave that stuff into the, like on the internet and not put it in a book? And really what was the driving force to get it into a book? Uh, so, you know, it's funny is that most of it actually, it's a collection of essays and most of them actually appeared online in various forms. And uh, um, one of the things that I found happens if, if, if you do, if most of your writing output appears on the internet, it's actually hard to figure out, it, you know, just looking back personally at, at that work it's hard to figure out if it all adds up to something if there are themes it's just like it's also um you know both ephemeral and kind of has no kind of inherent sense of organization um that um uh you know uh, a publisher i know sort of asked me whether i thought it might make a book and i wasn't even sure myself and then i just thought i would kind of go through everything to sort of see whether or not kind of the discipline of turning all these random essays all over the place into a single volume that actually clarifies sort of my own thinking about it. And I think it did to a certain degree. So I think, you know, so it was, it was definitely that. It was also, I think, um, um, motivated a little bit by, um, uh, you know, by just a desire to, um, you know, what are things you can do in a book that you can't do online? You know, how can you, you know, and then, and then the idea that I think it sort of is, um, um, I think I really do think we read differently um, if you're holding a book in your hand and you're turning pages versus, you know, holding a screen, you know, looking at a screen and either clicking or swiping or, you know, engaging with it in that way. And so just even that difference was kind of an interesting thing to me, too. Yeah, I, I get a lot of flack from my tech savvy friends because I refuse to do the iPad or Kindle thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, me too. I just want to, I want to smell the book. I want to, like, as weird as that may sound, I want to like hold it. Yeah. You know, there's a, you just don't get that with, um, again, you, you said it best. I think it's not a utility necessarily, uh, you know, the utility of delivering information and thought. It, it, there's so much more to it. Um, yeah, great. Very experiential. Um, so there's this middle segment that I want to get into, and there's just a little bit more that I want to talk about. Um, uh, the middle segment is Bang, Mary Kill. And there's three questions. And so the first one is, what's what's the guilty pleasure of food or drink that you bang down when no one's looking? Like, you kind of don't want people to know about it, but I'm going to try to pry it out. Of you. I, I, I mean, this isn't that interesting, but I, I don't think this is that novel or anything. But I mean, I really, um, uh, I, 
Well, you want to know the truth? The, the thing that I I haven't had one in years, but um, um, I had um, you know, talking about growing up in the sixties, um, um, my um, my mom used to stock. And I used to have before I went to school a um, um, a a popped. Uh, you know, Pop-Tarts, which I think came two to a package. So I think if you were in for one, generally you would have two of these Pop-Tarts. And there was one that was called, um, it's like, it's, they come in cinnamon. Then there's a version of the cinnamon one that's like cinnamon frosted. So I'm, I'm assuming that each one of these Pop-Tarts was like 4,000 calories and had, you know, a, a quarter ton of, you know, saturated fat, but never mind all that. There was just something about the, the kind of, I mean, it's funny. I complain now, and I sort of like diminish it. But like, um, you know, in you know, in 1969, it seemed like very futuristic to kind of like open this like vacuum seal pack, take these two kind of machined pastries that were perfectly rectangular, rectangular out of the pack, and put them into a toaster, depress the mechanical toaster, you know, wait for them to pop out, and then there would be sort of like you know your fresh breakfast pastry, except it was much more like the kind of things that you could imagine an astronaut having, you know, in a space station on Mars, really, because, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, what transpired to kind of deliver these things to your grocery store and then to your house, you know, God only knows what, you know, what kind of preservatives and other, you know, what actually was in these things, who the hell knows. But uh, there was like, I can still, I have my sense memory of what, of like what those tasted like and how you know the, the texture the how much they weighed you know everything about it was just sort of like just um really nice so i haven't had one in a long time although i did watch over the holidays i watched pulp fiction which i've seen many times it was on tv and um there's a scene uh where bruce willis right before bruce willis well spoiler alert if you haven't seen it but there's a part where he shoots john john derold is a hitman waiting, waiting to kill him and he's um um He's uh, he returns to his house where he's being um, uh, where it's being staked out by the hitman uh, played by Travolta, and he thinks he's gotten in out of the house safely to recover something important, and uh, then he just he sees like some pop tarts and he says, you know, I think I'll have a pop tart, and he actually, except of course in true Quentin Tarantino fashion, they're not called pop tarts. He gives them some airsots, you know, kind of off brand name, but like they're clearly pop tarts, and he puts them in the toaster, and there's this great sequence where he pushes the toaster down, he notices a gun on the counter, he looks he looks to the bathroom, he hears the um, um, uh, bathroom flush, he realizes someone's else in the house, he picks up the gun, he, um, uh, I think he kicks in the door as he's doing, the, you know, he, at that point, it's like edited so fast, I think he shoots, then the Pop-Tart comes up, the smoke from the gun sets off the, um, you know, the fire detector sound, and it's just like, it's probably like, you know, three seconds of screen action with 17 edits in it, one of which is like this close-up of these two Pop-Tarts coming out of a toaster. So they're um, not just tasty, but they're incredible, um, um, you know. Uh, inventions too. Yeah, they're incredible dramatic devices. So I am, I'm, I'm all in on pop tarts. I love it. Yeah, and I think people, you know, with good reason, we can talk about preservatives and we can go into hours on that. Um, but I truly don't think industry set out to harm humans with their food innovations because back then that was amazing. Like that really was an amazing thing. Like 
you know, even the word pop tart, you know, that the brand name <laughs> itself, you know, <laughs> it's so much nicer than toaster pastries or something like that. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, yeah there was some brainstorming uh, that came up with that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what about the food or drink that if you had to, you would just marry, you could eat it every day. You love it. It's your thing. Um, well, um, I had a um, client, I got a client uh, uh, decades ago in um, Kentucky and he introduced me to bourbon and I then um, went on a long romance with bourbon and got really interested in it like started caring about it deeply started caring about it like too deeply if you ask me and then um uh um uh, a little more than a year ago on um uh new year's eve uh 2016 i um uh, i decided that in 2017 i'd just see if i could go alcohol free just as a little experiment which i did uh which people said how did that go and i always say it was it's boring um and um i've had no noticeable physical uh, it wasn't like i was like um um you know missing work or falling down drunk or you know peeing myself or stuff like that so it wasn't like i, I was uh, you know suddenly i was productive i was i was a productive and decent member of society after that but i just sort of thought you know i just thought you know um uh you know you know what can i do with that so i'm like if right now on my desk i've got a, an open bottle of widow jane straight bourbon whiskey which is uh um a local new york one so i think there's you know there's lots of i think it's like um i, I can really do without wine but i think whiskey is like really an amazing drink with an amazing culture behind it and um Although I, in theory, it was a year-long experiment uh, to see what would happen if I didn't drink anything. I'm sort of rolling it over a little into 2018 to see what happens, but I think I'll ease up a little bit. We'll see what happens. Um, but it's, um, you know, there's, a, and I think as a designer, um, and and you know, there are designers that have this feeling about different sorts of uh, of of drinks packaging, and I think particularly maybe alcohol packaging sort of brings out a lot of very specific design reactions, whether it's beer. Oh, no, I don't know. It could be beer. It could be coffee, I guess. It could be um, uh, certainly, um, you know, scotch whiskey, which has its own kind of visual language. Wine certainly has its own visual language. And then, um, you know, American whiskey like bourbon and rye have their own visual language as well, which I think is like really rich and interesting. And so I think one of the most beautiful things in the world is like a really beautifully set up backlit bar with all, you know, all those amber colored bottles with all their amazing labels and exactly the right time. You know, I think it's just as a, um, you know, uh, there are very few products that I think have had so much time and attention put into the presentation of them. Um, you know, and then if you get into cocktail culture on top of that, the kinds of combinations that people do, the whole thing is really just, uh, um, you know, has, has been the object of so much creativity over the years that I think it actually is kind of an amazing liquid. Um, that's, that's actually probably, um, you know, ruined many lives and probably at the end of the day, isn't that good for you, but in moderation, <laughs> in moderate, everything in moderation, everything in moderation, so, quick sub question, whiskey with or without an E. Um, oh, there's some rule about that, isn't there? But I think it's um, um, with an E. The American one is with an E, I think. And I think the uh, Scotch is uh, without, I think. So with with an E for me. 
All right. And then the third question here is what food or drink would you just get rid off the face of the planet if you could? Like you, you hate it. I have to admit, I don't like feta cheese. And um, um, in the town where I live, um, there's a very popular restaurant that's a Greek restaurant that my um, wife and um, my wife loves it. And my um, uh, daughters like it. And it's like kind of a go to place. And I have to admit, I just, I like, don't get it at all. And so I don't want to say I don't like Greek food um, because that just sounds like it's too dismissive of a whole culture, which has fantastic cuisine associated with it. But I think it's just sort of like olives and feta cheese, that whole thing. It's just kind of like a strain of Mediterranean cooking that I find really um, um, alienating. I've tried to like it and I've tried to get into it. And I have to admit, I've had it like at the high end and the low end. And I just have had very little satisfaction with them. You know, it's unlike, you know, when you think about uh, how, you know, relatively close it is to say Italian cooking, where, you know, I think that's a very easy cuisine to love. Um, and, you know, I think most Americans who, you know, when they're asked to think about like food from other cultures that they like, that's probably the first one they would name, right? Because everyone, it's sort of, you know, it's at this point, it's almost all American. Um, uh, um, but there's just something about um, about feta cheese and olives and sort of just the overall kind of notes of Greek cuisine that I, like, I don't hate it. I don't think it should be wiped off the face of the earth and everyone should be deprived of it. Um, but um, uh, it's just something I could completely do without, I think. Unfortunately, it's my, I assume that's my loss. So uh, it's, my own shortcomings and blindness to its uh, charms. That's okay. And you're, you're very gracious about the the good people of uh, Greece and their food. Um, and we actually, my wife and I just went there for our, our year anniversary. It's in, yeah. And it's a place to visit. It's amazing. Of course, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that they wanted to charge us extra for the added weight that I brought back with me in my belly um, on the plane. But yeah, feta cheese, it's either for you or not, you know, like same thing with olives. My wife hates olives, which is great. Cause that means she doesn't eat my olives. And so that's a wonderful thing. Um, getting into the grids a little bit, and I know we kind of started on the grids, but I, I did want to talk a, about your work with On Rye because um, I thought it was really intriguing. It was, uh, I think, a very interesting take, um, a little bit of a fresh take on restaurant brands, especially in a, in a town like New York where it's just phew, rampant. You know, you, you can trip over 30 in just one block. Um, how much immersion do you do? on a brand like that. I mean, I think that's one of the fun parts about restaurant branding is, um, well, let's see. I mean, the on rye was, um, um, a couple who, um, were based in Washington, DC, who, um, had never done a restaurant before. Got you know, I had done like a couple of pop up things and decided to kind of open a, a regular bricks and mortar permanent location. And, um, their interest was doing, um, kind of an updated Jewish deli. And it's actually located in Washington, D.C. And uh, the, um, uh, you know, and it was, I'm trying to think, they had, you know, they, 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 they actually had, when they came to us, they kind of had a fairly well-articulated idea about how they wanted to position this place, where they wanted it to be, um, um, you know, not a cliched sort of, uh, uh, you know, take on a, uh, you know, a traditional Jewish deli, uh, but something that felt really modern because what they wanted to do was kind of like do, do the best of that food, but kind of updated. So there was less fat, it was less heavy. It felt, you know, healthier overall. It felt fresher and smarter. Um, and, um, 
and so they, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, they probably had, every time, it, like every meeting we had, they would have some, they, it was great because they'd always bring some sort of thing that they were, they had in development, either, you know, either, you know, a babka or some kind of a, um, you know, egg cream recipe or some way of doing kind of brisket or something that, and they'd have some samples, which was really great. Um, oddly, I don't, I'm I'm not sure you need to, um, actually be eating the, the, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure you need to like submerge yourself actually in the cooking of the food to do it. I think you have to like eating, um, and you have to like restaurants in order to do this sort of thing enthusiastically. I think it's probably true with any design challenge you do. You can really tell when the designer likes the subject matter and when they are just trying to engage with the subject matter without passion, but just intellectually. You can really tell the difference there, I think. Um, uh, um, so I think the, um, uh, the, the they have the name, and I think we... Um, they gave us a really good brief. I don't remember kind of like flailing around that much or kind of having that much confusion. The name was already there. Um, we thought the name was actually kind of a tough one because it's, you know, it's called on Rye. It's five letters. Um, it actually is, um, depending on how you arrange the letters, it can look like an unfamiliar kind of like word jumble in a way. O-N-R-Y-E. Um, you know, and it's not, it's also not necessarily, you know, like, uh, Joe's place. That sounds like a restaurant, right? On Rye, you, can, you know, doesn't necessarily quote unquote sound like a restaurant. Right. So, um, which I think was part of their thing. They were trying to make, they were trying to like allude to, uh, Jewish deli culture without necessarily, um, you know, calling it, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, um, uh, so they, they have the name. And so I think we did, well, we, we did like a, you know, some, some, what you'd expect, some typographic investigations in the name and then just decided to kind of like, a, um, just kind of lightly sort of like touch on the, um, the deliness of it a little bit, just sort of in terms of making it feel kind of, um, you know, there's a kind of pared down efficiency that we associate with delis. I think, you know, next in line, take a number, what do you want? Even kind of, um, you know, the image of rude, kind of quasi rude or comically rude or fast talking waiters kind of associated a little bit with delis, right? So we wanted to feel a little, a little funny, a little kind of fast and sharp, but not necessarily, but like modern. So it's a sans serif typography, black and white, really kind of simple, clean and clear. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was well executed. And I think one of the things that stood out to me is the food photography itself had an, an almost vintage feel, but it still felt new as well. Um, you know, well, um, my um, uh, uh, um, the designer that had working on that with me was uh, um, Jesse Reed, who um, and the, the project manager, Julia Lemley. And Julia Lemley, I think, knew the, uh, the, the two founders and owners. Because um, uh, she grew up in Washington, and she's, uh, she's from a Jewish family. Jesse's from a Jewish family. I was raised Catholic, and so both of them were kind of providing kind of the, um, you know, kind of the Jewish take. And although I think I probably ate more kind of deli food. I don't know, I'm not going to say I ate more deli food growing up than either of them, but I sort of think, uh, um, in a way, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's 
it, it, it's it's not you know you, like as George Lois said in his famous ads for Levi's right you don't ha- you don't have to be Jewish to love Levi's and thus it also is with this food right so um, uh, so I think the um, uh, um, the as we got into it the um, uh, the trick was simply how do you actually support that um, you know that kind of experience. And, and, and make it return kind of the focus to the food, because I think that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make it really clear that this wasn't about, you know, play acting, this sort of, uh, you know, the theater of, of that deli experience that we might know from, you know, you know, the climactic scene in um, When Harry Met Sally or the, 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 the scenes in Broadway Danny Rose with the comedians kind of like uh, um you know, talking to each other around uh, tables and stuff like that, but rather, um, you know, how do you do it in terms of, uh, um, uh, just, you know, focus on the food and make that come to life. And so Jesse had the idea of, um, of, um, of getting, I think, uh, his name, I think his name is, um, Bobby Doherty, who's a, a really great photographer whose work appears in, uh, the food section of, uh, uh, the food stories that New York Magazine does. Um, he, we had him do all the photography and had it like done in a very kind of like geometric, stylized sort of way. So, um, you know, taking um, uh, the stuff they had and just shooting it kind of abstractly on kind of like white backgrounds or colored backgrounds or stuff like that. And um, uh, and those became motifs we were able to use in lots of different ways. Yeah, it's had a nice visual language, I think. Now, before the call, you mentioned that On Rye has closed, unfortunately. Yeah, 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 yeah. They closed at the end of last year. So I, I, I didn't get any of the details. I got a note and I sort of traded notes with those guys. I think, you know, the trouble with restaurants is it's just a tough business. That's all. It's uh, um, When we work with restaurateurs, I think, um, uh, you know, the thing that um, the thing that people – like anyone that's ever entertained the idea of opening a restaurant, the thing they tend to kind of underestimate is just, you know, they, they picture the, you know, they think, well, I like to cook and I love, I, you know, I love the idea of like kind of people coming to my place and eating my food and that'll just be a great feeling. And that all just seems like fun. Like you're almost like hosting a party, except like running a restaurant is, it's a couple, it's got a couple of things, you know, going for it. One, it's got a couple, a couple of things that you're up against. One is that it's, um, you know, you, you, it just like never stops. You sort of like have to be there all the time. And, you know, you're not being there just glad handing the guests and sort of like presiding over this ongoing party. You like people to feel that that's happening perhaps. But I mean, really what you're doing is just um, keeping an eye on everything constantly because the minute you don't, you know, things go wrong. Um, and particularly if it's like, you know, if you if it's, if it's your first restaurant, plus it's like the economics of it are just, you know, between the fixed costs like rent and then what you have to uh, set up in terms of your food and and uh, beverage costs and labor and, you know, every insurance, every everything else, you know, and then you're just kind of living on these margins that are just really, really tough. And, uh, you know, one false move, the wrong location, the wrong price point um you know so many things can go wrong that just will tip the balance where suddenly you cannot make 
you know, where you just can't make money doing it. You just can't. And it's sort of like, and if you're in a restaurant that works, you just think, wow, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world. But, you know, um, anyone thinking about getting into that business should just spend some time in some restaurants that aren't working and kind of just think how mysterious it is that a place that can be well-designed, have beautiful graphics supporting it, have food that doesn't taste that you know, food that can taste pretty good and attractive people um, greeting you and serving you. Um, and yet it'll be empty. And then the next door will be a place that's completely packed. And it's just hard to fathom what the difference is sometimes. So it's a, um, um, it's not for the faint of heart. So I think um, um, uh, uh, every time I was in um, on Rye, I had a fantastic experience. The food was, as promised, really, really good. I think they'll be back with uh, something else having kind of had um, – you know, having had this experience and pretty, pretty modest little store. It wasn't a, uh, a giant place. It was a, um, it was a place where you, um, uh, stood in line, placed your order, then took it to your table, basically. So it was like a, it was a fast casual sort of place. I'm sorry. I'm out in the open when I'm having this conversation. It's been largely pretty quiet. Is it okay? Um, you know, so it was a fast casual place. So it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a big capital investment for them. So I think they learned something and hopefully they'll be able to take it the next stage now. Yeah, I hope so too. You're right. So when we get a call about a new place, uh, opening up a new concept, our first goal is to talk them out of it. <laughs> like, are you sure you want to do this? We can take half a million dollars and have a lot more fun um, than this is going to be for you. But um, it's, it's sad to see him go. The work was fantastic. I think the last question I have, and then I'll let you go, um, is now that they're closed, we deal with this all the time. We have restaurants that we've designed. The design is strong. It's good. It met and exceeded the requirements in our opinion, but they're now closed. And so do you feel that that's still relevant to show and talk oh, about? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, – um you know, there's lots of work that I've done that I'm proud of that has either been superseded by other things or rendered obsolete or anything. I mean, so if you're a, uh, you know, I do a lot of just straight up corporate identity, institutional identity, brand identity. And uh, um, every once in a while, you do a logo that somehow doesn't change. Like I did. I did the work for the Brooklyn Academy of Music here in 1995, and it still is the same identity as it was then. But more more common is something like, um, uh, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue. I did the packaging for them for 10 years, and then they had a change of management. They kept sort of the logo that we had that we actually had touched up from a previous logo. And um, uh, and I'll still show that work because I think the work was good. And I the only reason I wouldn't show it is not because it's not being used anymore, but because it's just grown dated um you know and i think um you know like 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 we said earlier if you do a book that book never you know the book's never superseded by another design you know the book the book is the book right likewise if you do a, a large-scale um environmental graphics installation that's likely to stay around for a while um but i think um you know things like restaurants and retail of any sort or uh you know graphics like that in a way they have a responsibility to change and get updated all the time and even a restaurant that's been around for a long time like my partner paul share did all the graphics for shake shack and she, you know, she did one set of graphics when they first opened, and then she updated them after that, and then did, like, another modification of that when they started expanding to turn it into a system. And each one sort of built on the next, and each one sort of preceded the or revised and superseded the thing that preceded it, right? And I think that's just part of uh, the life cycle of these sort of um, – these sort of um, – 
you know, businesses. I think they have to keep moving and changing or else they die. And sometimes you go along for that ride. Sometimes it's a relay race where you'll carry the baton for a while. It'll be passed to someone else. And, um, um, I, I both, I like clients that are loyal and I also admire clients who, um, who kind of use, their choice of design and their choice of designers as a way to explore new things. I've been the beneficiary of that sometimes someone, you know, someone will say, Hey, we usually work with someone. So we'd like to try you for this. Um, and then also I've been the, the, you know, I've been on the losing end of that where I've had a client who's basically loyal to me. Just say, we think we need another, another way to look at this project. And I respect that. I think as long as they're choosing um, good people for the right reason, I think there's a lot of us who can do great work. And I think um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's uh, always just interesting to see how the designers and the work match up with the specific challenges. Yeah. I think that's honestly an amazing way to have uh, this podcast come to an end. Unfortunately, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Um, Michael, where can people find you online? Uh, we'll obviously have links to the Pentagram website as well as the social media channels and links to buy the book. But uh, is there anywhere else? Oh, well, I've got a um, uh, Twitter uh, account at um, at Michael Barut, one word, and uh, Instagram, which is at M Barut, and that's B I E R U T. So it's M B I E R U T, and it's Michael. Uh, they root all one word for Twitter. So I'm pretty easy to find as far as that goes. And I'm not uh, a maniac about uh, maintaining either one of those things, but I do keep up with them. And it's uh, fun to both um, follow and be followed. So uh, I encourage people to do that. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have the links there for people to follow you. Again, thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable and I appreciate the insights. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Joseph. Once again, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Do follow us at Grits Grids. That's Grits Grids with no end in between on Instagram and Twitter. This podcast and the Grits and Grids blog is a passion project of Vigor, a restaurant and beverage branding and marketing firm based in Atlanta. Check us out at www.vigorbranding.com. And of course, we're all over social media. Until next week, stay hungry, stay thirsty, and be creative.